This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Our news desk just uh, sharing with our team uh, a story that just crossed the Bloomberg buyer, Jonathan Levin, uh, out there in Florida, saying COVID-19 patients are dying in U.S. hospitals at levels not seen since February, and the numbers could worsen as intensive care units overflow in parts of the South. You know, Tim, I think we thought we were beyond these kinds of headlines and stories when it came uh, to the virus, but obviously not. It certainly seems like six weeks ago we were beyond those, but a lot has changed since then with the spread of the Delta variant. Fortunately, we have Dr. Amish Adalja, senior scholar and infectious disease physician at the Center for Health Security at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, joining us on the phone from Pittsburgh. The Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Dr. Adalja, it's always great to, to speak with you. Give us your reaction to what we are seeing about hospital deaths hitting February levels, even as for months the vaccines have become available? What we have is a a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And for many parts of the country, the pandemic is being managed appropriately with hospitalizations not reaching record numbers. But that's not the case for the whole country. There are approximately eight states that comprise about 50% of our hospitalizations where there are enough high-risk people that have not been vaccinated that they are driving cases, they're driving hospitalizations, and they're driving deaths. And What's different about it this time is there's no excuse for it. These are vaccine-preventable deaths. These are things that are being self-inflicted. And I think that's the, the problem we have right now is that we've got a portion of the country that is just not receptive to the idea or to the, to the evidence of the efficacy of these vaccines, and they're paying for it. What's the data on people getting COVID or possibly being hospitalized for those that are vaccinated? The data, the data shows that if you're a fully vaccinated individual, it's extremely unlikely that you get a severe case of COVID-19, that the vaccines are holding up tremendously well when it comes to serious disease, hospitalization, and death. It doesn't mean it never occurs, but it means that it occurs very rarely. And when it does occur, it's often in those people who are immunocompromised or have other medical conditions that put them at higher risk for having a more severe uh, case post-vaccination. The solution to hospitalization problems is vaccination. The majority of people that are in a hospital right now are not vaccinated. And it's no surprise that the states with the lowest levels of vaccination are the ones where we're hearing about hospitals worried about capacity again. So you feel like, I mean, I'm just always curious, We, t- you know, you guys in particular, we know, I know we follow the data points so closely. Do you feel like that we are tracking the vaccinated population really carefully so that we do understand what the risks are, um, engaging how high it is for those who've gotten vaccinated and yet, you know, are facing similarly the Delta variant like the rest of the population? When it comes to hospitalizations that occur among vaccinated people, there is a concerted effort to have that data available and to continually look at it and update it. And and that's what the CDC has been focused on. So Mm -hmm. I am confident that when it comes to severe disease, we have a good idea of how, what proportions are occurring amongst the vaccinated. And I don't think it's something that's a major risk. And where it was identified as a risk, for example, immunocompromised patients, that's where you saw 
that third the third primary dose uh, recommended a couple of weeks ago for people who, for example, had organ transplants or were on high doses of steroids. That was in direct recognition of the fact that there was clinical data showing that those people were comprising uh, a high proportion of those who were getting hospitalized post-vaccination after being infected with COVID-19. Dr. Adalja, yesterday we had uh, Dr. William Hazeltine, chair and president of Access Health International, on the show, and he brought up some uh, disturbing news from Israel, and he, he referenced a, a study in science that says that nearly 60% of gravely ill patients in Israel are fully vaccinated. So while we certainly see different numbers here in the U.S., I'm wondering your reaction to that, how you read into that data. I think that this is something that's very complicated to explain on a, on a radio show, but there is a lot of statistical issues with the way that that data has been reported. There's actually a statistical paradox in there because Israel is such a highly vaccinated country that you're seeing kind of a paradoxical look at the data, meaning that the high, the people that are at highest risk for getting COVID, no matter what, or getting hospitalized for COVID-19 are going to be older. The older tend to be heavily vaccinated in in Israel. If you're younger, vaccinated or not vaccinated, you're at very low risk for getting severe disease. So when you look at the way they've reported their vaccine efficacy, it's really being skewed by the age stratification. And if you crunch all the numbers step by step, and there's a, a blog post going around where a biostitian has done that, you see that it is holding up in Israel against severe disease. It's just an artifact of the fact that it's a highly vaccinated country. And if you are older, you're, o- you're, you're always going to be at risk for getting a higher getting a more severe case, more likely to be hospitalized, and it's getting kind of skewed. So I so, don't think the Israeli data shows that the, that the vaccines are eroding their protection against severe disease. In other words, if everybody in a country is vaccinated, then of course the people who are most gravely ill will be vaccinated because they are the ones who are vaccinated. Exactly. Or will be gravely ill, will have been vaccinated. Um, that makes sense. That makes sense. So that doesn't concern you. No, it doesn't concern me because uh, when you look at the data, it, it actually supports the fact that, that the vaccines are still working in Israel at preventing grave, uh, grave illness. It's just that there's so many people vaccinated that the numbers, when, when you talk about sheer per- percentages, it's going to mm-hmm. look that way. It's just like breakthrough infections are going to get more common as more people in the country are vaccinated. Breakthrough infections are going to have a bigger, they're going to be a bigger proportion of cases because right. there's more vaccinated people. Dr. Amish Adalja, senior scholar and in infectious disease physicians at the Center for Health Security at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Joining us on the phone from Pittsburgh, the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. It is supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Dr. Adalja, we started our conversation in the last block by you saying that this is a pandemic in the United States of the unvaccinated. We got a, a question from one of our listeners who says that given we are unable to reach or have been unable to reach many of the people who are hesitant to get the vaccine with the messaging that we've seen right now, what is the way to break through to them, to convince them to get the vaccine? People have to see the vaccine as an individual benefit to their life, something that's going to make their life better, just like any other product that they might take. And I think for a while, the CDC undersold the vaccine and then they and then they changed guidance and that drove that drove people to get vaccinated because they didn't need to wear a mask. And, and then they changed guidance back. And I think that's making it a little bit more difficult for for people to, to see this as an individual benefit. But I think what we have to do is show people that this is the way to remove the threat of COVID-19 from their lives. And it's going to be hard for people who maybe are at low risk for hospitalization. And we have seen some people in those states that where they're getting hit hard get vaccinated now. And that's that's encouraging. But I think it's more going to be kind of nudging that's going to help now. And one thing that could happen is the FDA giving full approval of these vaccines. That's going to take away one of the talking points from the anti-vax crowd that says that these are they, they kind of 
claim that this is an experimental vaccine, which it is not. That's one thing we can do is get the FDA to give full approval. And then I think having more private organizations think about COVID-19 vaccination as a way to improve their workplace safety and to improve their resilience to the pandemic in terms of their workforce. So they have less people getting sick, less people having to do contact tracing, be isolated, be quarantined. That's one way I think that we we're going to start to see vaccinations go up. But there's going to be a proportion of the population is just not going to move on this issue. And I think we're going to have to increasingly come to accept that and maybe make very marginal marginal inroads by kind of meeting people where they are and getting this vaccine into doctor's offices where people can talk to their primary care physician whom they trust. That's also uh, something I think that needs to be done as well. Instead of having to go to a drugstore or a mass vaccination center or a health department, having your PCP sit down and say, this is why I want you to get this vaccine. I think that would go a long way. Um, I'm always curious. We talk to a lot of members of the Johns Hopkins community, and we're really grateful for it. Um, and we get really great perspective, a lot of in-depth information. What kind of debate, though, internally goes on when it comes to COVID, the vaccine? Because we, to be fair, um, Dr. Adalja, like, there are some, it feels like members of your community, they're a lot more conservative in their view about vaccines or going out or wearing masks. And others, I think like yourself, who are like, you can be out there um, in a safe way if you're vaccinated and so on. So I'm just curious about the conversations you guys have uh, back in uh, Johns Hopkins. So, so I think there's definitely varied opinions. And I think it all has to deal with risk tolerance and risk preferences. And some people are more risk tolerant than others. Some people also the way they communicate to the general public is more of an abstinence only approach and others are more harm reduction. And I do think it, it has split the field a lot. But I think what what I know is that from sexually transmitted infections, from HIV, that giving people tools to be able to do things that they want to do safely or safer knowing that you can't get the risk down to zero, I think it's a much better way than to tell people never to do something or that this is absolutely forbidden to do and nothing changes. Because remember, this is an endemic respiratory virus. This isn't a temporary state of affairs. This virus is going to be with us 10 years from now. And if we don't teach people how to risk calculate, we're really hampering their ability to actually pursue those things that they love, their values. And I think that's the part where, where I, some, of, some colleagues of mine I, I vehemently disagree with because I think that they somehow think that this magically is going to disappear. It's not. And I think that's why we have to, that's why I've always been someone that's tried to help people think about what to do and how to do it safer, knowing that there's some level of risk and, and that risk might be worth taking depending upon what, what the value is that you're pursuing. And I think a lot of that was missing uh, in, the, in this pandemic. And I think we're, we're all harmed by it because mm-hmm. people then took risks that were, were too dangerous because they didn't have any, any, toolkit to, to rely on to help them decrease risks. Uh, Dr. Adalja, just in the last 30 seconds that we have with you, you said it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Unfortunately, there are tens of millions of kids under the age of 12 who are unvaccinated because the vaccine is not available for them. What is the best way for parents and them uh, to judge risk as school starts again, just in 30 seconds? First of all, surround your child with as many vaccinated people as possible. That's the best way to keep them safe. The other is this is going to depend upon parental risk tolerance. Is your child somebody that has risk factors for severe disease, like asthma, or they had an organ transplant, or they've got cancer? Then you need to be very, very cautious. If, it's a, if you're dealing with a healthy child, remember that other viruses like flu, like RSV, pose a bigger threat to your child than COVID-19 does. So your child is likely to be spared the severe consequences. But right. I think it's important if you're in an area where there's high transmission to take, to take precautions like wearing a mask at school. All right, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much, Dr. Amish Adalja, over at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, of course, at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic 
on Bloomberg Radio. In the new issue of Bloomberg Businessweek, uh, on newsstands online at businessweek.com and also on the Bloomberg Terminal, our Businessweek team really spreading out, talking to people, Tim, around the world about soaring food prices, how they are coping, and the sacrifices that they are making. Yeah, it shares a story of uh, people in Nigeria, in India, in Brazil, and in more places, and about the global implications of soaring food costs. Joining us now is Joel Weber, editor at Bloomberg Businessweek. He's joining us on the remote from Massachusetts. Also, Anne Riley Moffitt, Senior Editor for Energy and Commodities for Bloomberg News. She's on the phone from Rhinebeck, New York. Joel, what I, this is a heartbreaking story. It, you know, the, the part that really got to me were the instances of, of kids who can no longer share a glass of milk before mm-hmm. they go to bed because their parents can't afford it. Um, but what it also does is it shows the global story of higher food prices and the way that it, we talk about these things in the abstract, but the way that it affects people uh, in such big ways around the world. Yeah, and and big credit uh, to Anne on this one because she was really the the architect that that envisioned it and helped bring it all together. Um, the number that just really um, uh, caught my attention when I read it was that uh, there's been a 31 percent uh, increase in food prices from July to July, and that is just startling when you think about how many families all, are already kind of living hand hand to mouth, and then you know you you think about the cost of food in that and 30% is a significant jump that forces a lot of families around the world to make some really hard choices. Um, and, and on top of it, I, I thought the policy implication that was sort of interesting is that, you know, central bankers around the world, food and fuel are two things that they don't bring into to bear when they're thinking about inflation. So this is sort of an invisible problem on a policy level. Uh, and, and that makes it, um, you know, I think all the, all the more tragic, um, so, Anne, talk to us about um, how this project came into being. I've been hearing, uh, you know, since the start of the year that food prices are up, food prices are up, but we often hear it from, you know, a trader's perspective. You know, soybeans are at the multi-year high, or, um, but when you actually look at real families, when chicken breast in the U.S., for example, is now at a six-year high, you know, that's not just a number on a piece of paper. That's something that really impacts people's budgets. And when you want to buy that chicken breast, you're not buying something else if you're staying within your budget. And so, you know, we had this idea to really look at the actual sacrifices and swaps that families are making in real time. And so um, luckily Bloomberg News has a great staff of journalists around the world, um, and we selected one uh, reporter in each of these four countries we looked at, uh, Nigeria, India, Brazil, and the U.S., and they found a family who was willing to go grocery shopping with the reporter you know, every week this summer or you know, call them on their way home from the market or text them or WhatsApp them. You know, we were in communication with these families in a lot of different ways. But to say, hey, this week when you went to the store, what did you buy? How was it different than what you planned to buy? What thing did you not bring home that you wanted to, and then you saw the price and you had to make a real-time decision not to? And what are you going to feed your family this week? Um, and these great reporters got to know these families um, very well, and they shared a lot with them. And so I think it's a, it's a really powerful package, and I think it, it, it takes these numbers that feel very abstract and makes them feel very real. And I think you're right, very sad in some circumstances. And that is so true. And I love what Joel said about, I think about it when we do inflation data, and it's like back out, you know, when we do core inflation, back out the food and energy prices, it's like, wait a minute, I'm paying for food and energy. It impacts my ability to do things going forward. Uh, and this is what's great about this story. It brings it down to individuals, families, and what they are really doing. And it's not just, I think sometimes in the developed world, we think it's a developing world problem. 
it is, but it is also in the developed world. Right. And I, I think what's so important about this is even though we did look at several um, developing nations in those countries, we made sure to select families who are, you know, I mean, what is a representative family, but who consider themselves middle class. So Bloomberg has done a lot of great reporting on hunger and homelessness. Uh, but here we're looking at people who are employed, who often both parents in the family are employed. You know, they're bringing in incomes and still they're having a hard time um, getting that money um, to pay for food. Um, same thing in the United States. The family we talked to, um, this, this woman in South Carolina, you know, we would not call her food insecure. She actually, if you saw the picture, she has two full-size upright freezers where she stores meat, you know, until she needs it. So she's in a lot of ways doing really well, but it's because she spends all this money up front buys in bulk, buys by the case, which wasn't something I even knew you could do with meat, um, so that she saves money long-term um, by only buying things when they're at their absolute cheapest. So, um, you know, these are not the poorest families we're looking at. These are everyday families like you and me. I'm wondering uh, about the biggest cause of food insecurity, because you, in the piece, the team around the world shares several different reasons why this is happening. It has to do with droughts and climate change. It has to do with uh, production issues because of the COVID pandemic and supply chain issues. It has to do with people having economic insecurity because of lockdowns in India, for example. What is the, the greatest driver of food insecurity, though? Gosh, that's a great question. I think one of the reasons we want to write this story is because it is happening everywhere and not for all the same reasons, but for a lot of the same reasons. So some of these things are kind of transitory. They're short-term problems, hopefully, around COVID, like you said, that because of, um, because of infection rates, um, you know, certain, uh, there are backlogs in meatpacking plants or some agricultural areas can't get enough workers, or maybe the food is getting produced, but there are shortages of truckers, uh, and so we can't get the food from one place to another. I think in the last year, we really became aware of uh, you know, the challenges in the supply chain and how it does not take much very global supply chain um, you know, to mess up the flow of food. So that's a piece of it. And I think people are hopeful that that eventually fixes itself, that we get out of the pandemic and people come back to work and that is all fixed. That's the hope. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there are also these pieces that don't seem short term and are not abating. Things like China, uh, middle class growing so rapidly that they're importing so much more food than they ever did before, you know, meat, but also cooking oils and things like that, um, which ties up the price for everybody else. Uh, or climate change. You know, um, some of the freak things that happened this year was a, a frost in Brazil that has really decimated the, the coffee crop. Um, and you could call that a one-time you know, freak accident, or you could see it as part of a probably larger trends that we're going to keep seeing this extreme weather like that. So right. that might not be as transient as everyone thinks. It, it is a must read. And um, there's so much information, as you heard from Anne. So we highly recommend it. We'll make sure it gets out on Twitter. Our thanks to uh, our Bloomberg News Senior Editor for Energy and Commodities, uh, Anne Riley Moffitt, on the phone in Rhinebeck, New York, along with Bloomberg Business Week Editor, Joel Weber. I mean, this is what's really going on, Tim. It is. The story is featured in the new issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. It's available on newsstands and at Bloomberg.com slash Businessweek. This issue, go pick it up. It is, they're all good, but this is a particularly good one. All right. You are listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. Carol Master, Tim Stenevic, right here on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Businessweek with Carol Master and Bloomberg Quick Takes, Tim Stenevic on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed, everybody. This is Bloomberg Business Week and earnings out today from Petco. 
health and wellness. It beat on the top and bottom lines for the second quarter. Second quarter, comp sales too up 20% in the quarter, easily beating the estimate of analysts. And the company raised its fiscal year 2021 guidance. They also named a new CFO. Lots going on. Tim, the stock is up 3.5%. The, the stock is up 3.5%. And joining us now is Ron Coughlin, CEO of Petco, joining us right here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I just want to say, at this time where we're wearing masks everywhere, it is so nice to have somebody joining us in the studio, Ron. It's a treat. It is shared. It is shared. It's good to be in person. So thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about the and thanks first. for the update on the stock. I left my phone behind. So <laughs> $19.99 a share. Well, we have the data here at Bloomberg, and we have it right away. Uh, Ron, what worked so well for Petco Health and Wellness this last quarter? Yeah, I would tell you we're hitting on all cylinders. You cited the 20 on a one-year and a 30 on the on a two-year. If you look at our e-commerce, our e-commerce was up double-digit on top of being up 100% prior quarter. Our two-year stack on e-commerce is up 150%, which is just incredible. But, you know, the real thing was there was all these theories that uh, people would shift online during the lockdown because they had to, and then they wouldn't come back to stores. And our stores were up 17% because people love coming to our pet care centers. Our people are great. They get groomed. They get veterinary care. They get trained there. And it was the return to the stores that was the real, real story. In addition, we also put down another um, 15 veterinary hospitals, bringing our total to 155 hospitals. And wherever we do that, we're seeing a four to five point lift on our merchandise sales. So it's a good, good for us. I was just going to ask you how much of, because you guys really have pivoted into health and wellness in a big way. And I know here at Bloomberg, we've done a lot of stories about how that is really a growth area for the industry. How much of that ultimately is so key to top and bottom line metrics? Oh, it's the centerpiece. If you look at our portfolio, we've shifted our portfolio to healthier products and more premium products by 10 points in the last three years. Margins better too on this stuff? The margin's much better in, the, in those. And I'll come to frozen fresh because that to me is the embodiment mm-hmm. from a food standpoint. But one of the first decisions I made was to get rid of artificial ingredients out of all our foods. We're still the only out retailer. Out of everything? Out of all, we sell no, no food, no snacks with artificial ingredients. We're still the only retailer to do that, major retailer to do that. Then we got rid of shock collars last year. So we're dedicated to pet wellness. So that helps us from a food standpoint. We're uh, a market maker on um, fresh frozen, which, you know, my guy uh, eats uh, yummy, has uh, fish and sweet potatoes. I'd have a lot less <laughs> cholesterol if I did Wait, that's what I thing. had for dinner last night. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's the whole theory, though. <laughs> I know. Human-grade food. And uh, we're the number one retailer for, um, for that fresh and fr- fresh frozen space, and we're being market makers on that. And What's the growth example. in that particular part of the market? Uh, 50%. 50%. It's supposed to go from $1 billion to $4 billion between now and 2025. And then you get into vet care, right? And uh, we're, we're driving affordable vet care because we want more pets to get the right care. Look, it's why people are no longer called pet owners, right? They're called pet parents That's instead right. because they're treating, we are treating our pets more like kids. Hey, Ron, this is for the quarter that ended in July. What can you, at the end of July, what can you tell us right now about real-time data with what you're seeing with customer behavior as the Delta variant continues to spread? Because it's a different story on August 19th than it was on July 31st when it comes to the levels of the virus that we're seeing here in the U.S. Sadly, that is true. 
on a good side from our business standpoint, there you see no impact. Foot traffic I have, is the same. I have gone and looked for correlations between COVID and COVID penetrations. And I'll give you a, a real microcosm of it. I, I asked the team yesterday to look at Florida. How is our business doing in Florida where the penetration is higher? Florida is outperforming rest of chain right now. So we're not seeing that correlation. And I will tell you, our business um, accelerated on a two-year comp um, in the sec- at the end of Q2 and has continued through Q3. So it's very strong and we're not seeing, the only t- time we got impacted, quite frankly, sadly, as a New Yorker, was when New York shut down. Then we got impacted because it was pretty much a complete shutdown. Mm-hmm. Nowhere else, nowhere else have we found a correlation between our business. It shifts to more online, back to the pet care centers, but we didn't see a business uh, decline. So are you at all nervous that if New York starts to kind of roll back there, that that would be an impact on your business? If you Again? had the degree of shutdown, but I think at a 50% vax or whatever New York is now, it would be hard to imagine going back to where that was. Why, why do you think this is? Why, why do you think we're seeing fewer people travel? We're seeing, we anticipate we'll see fewer people eat out in restaurants as they have to, you know, show proof of vaccination. Why are they still shopping for their pets? Yeah. Uh, on, in person rather than just online. You know, as the reopening started, I called us a a unicorn. When people, you know, stayed at home and the family, um, the the appreciation for family, which was one of the nice things about pandemic, is being at home with your family, spending more time. And pets were central to that. And I think they helped us from an emotional standpoint. I really believe that. But then when we had reopening, all of a sudden you're getting leashes, you're getting leads. But guess what? You're also going back into our pet care centers. And in our pet care centers, you're spending more. And quite frankly, our margin's higher because we're not shipping to you. So we're winners on both sides of of this thing. Um, But I I just think that um, pets were so central to um, human beings making it through this pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I know, I I don't disagree with you. What about um, in terms of finding workers? Is that a problem? Yeah, it's it's a great question. Um, so it's absolutely a tight market. Uh, but at the same time, we've done a lot of work on our employer value proposition, if you will. So we've done a lot of work on improving our compensation and benefits. We've done a lot of work on our mission. We're the only... Pe- uh, company in our space whose mission is improving lives. You think all the companies do, we're the only one who has a mission of improving lives. For, so for pet lovers who want a great work experience, we're unique. I can say that, but here's the proof of the pudding. Our applications are up 60% since the beginning of the year. Our retention is up. We've never had more groomers working for Petco than we have today. So yes, it's tight, but we feel really good about our ability to navigate. Just got 20 seconds, then we'll come back and talk some more. Are you paying more, though, for those workers because it is such a tight labor market? We've had to increase. So, But we're, I don't want to say we're, we, we have raised our wage, average wage double digit in the last year, not just to compete, but because our mantra is, as PECO does better, our employees will do better. Okay. So it's part of the corporate mission culture at this point. Our mission is improving the lives of pets, pet parents, and the people who work at PECO. It's been a crazy year, to say the least, year and a half. And a lot of times when we have a leader on or a CEO on, we ask about leadership lessons because we didn't have a playbook about any of this. No. I... I, I this year has been unique on two fronts. The first one is, as a leader, ha- having to say that the health and wellness of my employees is first and foremost. So you're making decisions real time that affect their health. Are they going to wear masks? Aren't they going to wear masks? Last week, we put vaccination trucks um, in our distribution centers to get people vaccinated. Are they going to wow. take them up or not? And you know, 
it was a real moment of truth for us as a leadership team. But I will tell you, lots of people like to criticize the PE firms. Every single decision I made to spend money to take care of our people, they supported. Uh, and when you make the right decisions for your people, guess what happens? Your people are loyal to you. And so we talked earlier about yeah. our, um, our ability to hire. Our retention is up and you get a buzz that you're the type of company that takes care of people. And it was a real lesson. I think the second thing was we've most, most of us have spent our careers avoiding um, some topics like race. Mm-hmm. And BLM, um, that was not an option. And we all had to learn how to engage in these and to put your guards down. And I remember hearing um, a director who works in my company in the merchandise team talking about how he's afraid to go in his next door neighbor's backyard if the dog walks there because his wife's afraid he's going to get shot. And, you know, having those discussions in the workplace is not something you were comfortable doing, but it makes us a better community. Petco Health and Wellness reporting earnings earlier in the day. Second quarter comp sales uh, beat uh, estimates coming in at 20% increase versus 13%, 13 13.7% estimates. The company is saying that it sees 2021 adjusted EPS 81 cents to 85 cents shares higher now by 3.16%. Ron, we were talking COVID is the backdrop to everything that's happening right now. What is your policy on masking in stores right now? Is it different also regionally depending on where you have stores? Yeah, so we made the decision uh, several weeks ago after um, having uh, letting our employees make their choice uh, that they all have to have masks on consistent with CDCs. We've been following CDC and then um, in t- when there's local regulations then we defer to those. So with uh, our customers if you're vaccinated it's your choice. If you're unvaccinated we ask you to wear a mask. Do you plan to require your employees to get vaccinated? Uh, At this point, we have not made that requirement. Why? You know, we tend to resemble the U.S., and um, that's a person's personal medical choice. Um, And we are respecting that, though we are encouraging. So we've offered um, payments. We've offered time off. We've brought vaccination trucks to sites. um, But at the end of the the day, it is a person's personal choice. And there's also people who have medical reasons why they can't do it. Do you ask them for – do you ask your employees if they've been vaccinated? And can they do other things if they have been vaccinated? Um, we ask them to submit when they get vaccinated, but uh-huh. we have not asked them um, if they are vaccinated. I, I do wonder because the, the private sector certainly has a role in this, as we yeah. heard from President Biden, as we heard from the way that Americans trust their 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 employers yes. uh, in, in different ways than they trust health officials, than they trust mm-hmm. the government. If and when the CDC does fully authorize uh, these vaccines, would you change yeah. your stance and require them? Yeah, so we're going to require for our support center uh, teams. Um, absolutely. We've already signaled that. So those are our headquarter teams. Um, you know, I don't see this major um, trigger on um, the, the, the uh, FDA fully authorizing. We, we've been advised through this process by UCSD's head of epidemiology, Ch- Dr. Chip Schooley. He's been fantastic. Um, and, and his contention is they're already authorized emergency usage. There's a lot of other th- boxes they need to tick. So I don't see that as a major trigger. Um, but right Right now, we're not requiring vaccines for folks who work in our distribution centers or in our um, or in our stores. How has COVID and just this whole process of the last year and a half kind of changed how you think about the company, how you think about the future, how you think about risks? 
Yeah, well, let me start on the back end uh, in terms of risk. Um, one of the things we've done is we really focus on generating recurring revenue. We want sticky recurring revenue. So we have an offer called Repeat Delivery where um, the food will show up automatically on your doorstep. We have an offer. We have insurance offers. We have a pup box. We have a brand new puppy. You get a box of great things, toys and treats for your puppy. But we launched a program called Vital Care, which is a, a, um, a brings our whole ecosystem together. And so you get your checkups, you get your grooming, you get uh, discounts on products for $19 a month. So what we're trying to do is shift more of our revenue to recurring revenue. Uh, and we our rev- recurring revenue customer base was up 50% this quarter, and our revenue from those customers up 60%. So we're successful. And our e-commerce is already 50% plus recurring revenue. How much, how many, all right, what percentage of your customers are involved in recurring revenue programs? Yeah, it, it, it would be um, from an e-commerce standpoint, it's over 50%. Okay. And then in total business, uh, over 10% of okay. our customers. But growing. But growing. Growing 60%. Or growing 50% the customer yeah. base. What is the relationship between the people who order purely online and then experience a Petco Health and Wellness Center as you increasingly make these experiential yeah. locations? And, and how do you grow that? How, what are the synergies there? I think I honestly believe this is the future of retailing. The hybrid, the hybrid. The, we, we call it omni-channel. Omni-channel has been thrown around for years, but I think the pandemic. I finally understand really what it means now that I'm using it more. The pandemic <laughs> no, really brought omni-channel to life. Thirty-nine totally. percent of customers say that's how they want to purchase, which is why our model well, is so powerful because we have the stores and we have the e-commerce. I mean, you can't groom your pet, you know, through e-commerce yet, so. Yeah it makes sense that there are physical locations and this omnichannel approach works. That's right. And you also can't get advice on what's the best food. 90% of mm-hmm. pet parents want to do the right thing for their, the best thing for their pet. Only 50% know what it is, but, what but that looks like. You must be exploring a way for people to ask those questions of experts uh, in, in an e- through an e-commerce channel, the same way that they can ask those questions from an associate in one of your stores. Yeah, we have an asset called Pet Coach, and yeah. it's there. Um, but there's nothing like It's amazing how influential... Um, our, our folks in our stores are. I, we were talking, you know, lots of questions on supply chain, right? Because right. there's not one vendor who thought we're, there's going to be 10 million pets last year, right? So nobody it's was crazy. scaled up to provide this. But when you come into our pet care center, oh, I'm sorry, I don't have Royal Canin, but I have that same urinary tract product for um, Hills. Can I can I get you that product? And our folks are trusted, uh, and so they have a real. Roll. Sorry, no, no, I didn't mean to cut you off. Just quickly, like 20 seconds, we'd be remiss. The outlook, does it feel like you can repeat what happened in the second quarter or the comparisons get a little tough? No, actually, the litmus test was how we ended Q2 and into Q3, and we feel really, really strong. Our model's working. Our, our people can execute, so we feel really good about the, the guide and the raise that we, we uh, brought. Favorite forward. dog toy? Favorite dog toy. Um, there's... Uh, uh, oh, hurry! Uh, Ron, Hurry! Lammy. Lammy. Lammy is dog crack. Uh, Okay. Ron Coughlin, so much fun, so much information. The head of Petco. This is Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This 
is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. Just about ten and a half minutes left in the Thursday trading session. We've been bouncing around now just a hair higher, as uh, Doug mentioned, on the S&P 500, down on the Dow, and the NASDAQ, call it little change, just up about 15 points. Let's get to the drive to the close. Joining us now is Katerina Simonetti, Senior Vice President and Private Wealth Advisor at Morgan Stanley Private Wealth Management. Joining us now on the phone from Philadelphia. Katerina, it's great to have you on the show. What what goes through your head when you see a day like this, when you know you wake up and you see what futures are doing and you think that it's going to be another day of uh, a sea of red? And then lo and behold, the dip buyers emerge. They come in, the S&P 500 higher by more than one-tenth of one percent right now. The NASDAQ in the green, though, the Dow lower. Tim, thank you for having me on the show. And it is very clear that market is struggling to separate noise from data. And what we're seeing here is investors who on one side are getting seriously worried about the continuity of this growth. When they look at the value of their portfolios and the growth that was achieved over the last year, it is very clear to them that this is the type of returns that usually we realize over the course of two, three years. And here, you know, this happened in this really short period of time. So, These type of corrections, like we saw this week, is very much, you know, something that we expect, you know, but at the same time, we also know that there are so many things that are supporting this market, like the stimulus and the fact that we're still in the low interest rate environment. Would would you consider, I just want to make sure I understand that, right? You would consider the the sell-off that we saw this week a correction? I would say that that this is a series of small market corrections. It's very small. We're to the point where we were on the S&P 500 in early August. Well, absolutely. But if you saw it at some level, I mean, we were the dip was like as low as as much as five percent, you know. And again, we it's not it's something that we saw already. And when we consider the higher labor costs and the supply chain interruptions and the fact that the earnings that we are seeing coming in the second quarter are extremely mixed. You know, so this points to us that we're going through this mid-cycle transition. So this type of buying on dips that we're seeing right now, you know, is very typical in the fact that we are still in the bull market, but in the mid-cycle transition phase of it, you know, which is known for heightened market volatility and this type of small rolling corrections, you know, it's like something that is very typical for this stage. I don't know. Call me, I don't know. Like I'm looking even at the VIX. I know uh, there's been some talk about, you know, heightened volatility. We are seeing kind of a bouncing around in the trade, but it does seem to be rather slim and thin in terms of high to low moves. And the VIX, yep, we're up above 21, almost 22, but on a historical basis, we're still pretty low. Uh, Carol, I would agree with you. You know, and again, we are seeing what is happening in the market right now in the context of the overall bull market. But you can't disregard the fact that the growth that was achieved over the course of last year in a very short time frame, right, was is extremely right. substantial, and it's justifiably so. You know, but we have to ask ourselves, like, what is next, right? And we think that the the repositioning portfolio based on this day-to-day value, you know, is not something that investors should be doing right now. What we are advocating is, you know, rotating out of the indexes, you know, taking some profits in S&P 500, in Russell 2000, and instead going with the 
high-quality individual positions when we can pay really close attention to valuations, make sure that we know that there is appropriate market positioning, you know, the, and, and that there is future for earnings growth potential. So right? you're saying don't buy, don't buy the market, buy individual names. Absolutely. That's our position right now. Buy individual names and be very selective in security selection and also very selective in sector rotation in what type of sectors you're buying. How do you think the concerns about the Delta variant are manifesting themselves in the equity markets right now? Because we have some serious concerns. Uh, We have an article in the Bloomberg this afternoon uh, that Americans are dying in hospitals at levels last seen. Earlier this year, when the vaccine was not widespread, when it was not available uh, like it is now, Apple closing a store in South Carolina, IBM closing offices in in New York due to COVID concerns. Tim, uh, Delta is a serious concern, not only for us, but globally. Um, The way that we see that the major difference between now and when we first, you know, were introduced to this virus is the fact that we, in fact, have the vaccine. So the question here is how is Delta variant actually affecting vaccinated people and whether it makes sense to, you know, to get those booster shots and how effective they would be. You know, so I think the challenge here is to making sure that more and more, you know, a larger percentage of our population is vaccinated. But because of that, we see the long term effect on the market to to be not as deep as what we saw last year, specifically because we have the vaccine. We have a number of different ones that are proven to be quite effective. Um, and we have treatment plans that, you know, seem to work pretty well. But it's very much, you know, a big area of concern. As you say, don't buy the market. Uh, be much more specific in terms of your investment um, uh, choices. How much, Katerina, can you drill down for us further for our audience about what people should be buying or investing new money in right now? Carol, absolutely. The sectors specifically that we like are healthcare. And Tim, to your point about Delta variant, healthcare is a sweetheart of a sector from the overall positioning because of all the pent-up demand of healthcare procedures that people did not, you know, do <laughs> during the lockdown. Mm-hmm. And because of the long-term positioning, because the virus is still with us, you know, evident by the Delta variant. And so healthcare is well positioned. We followed very shortly by financials. We are in the very low interest rate environment, but we also understand by number of statements made by Federal Reserve that eventually rates are going higher and financials are the earnings of financials are positively correlated to higher rates. So we like financial stocks. We like just generally high quality dividend paying stocks. The same could be said about consumer staples. While consumer discretionary might not be a sector to be in, because if we were going out there and getting some luxury goods or maybe remodeling our homes or, you know, making these one time purchases. Now, consumer staples are here to stay, you know, while consumer discretionary is not might be something that is going down right now, you know, despite of the fact that we might be, you know, Maybe general population will be making less money as right, stimulus right. checks are not going out anymore. Right. We'll still be spending money on certain staple items. Hey, Katerina, I wanted to get your, your thoughts on a, an actual pullback here because it has been a significant period of time, almost a year, since we've seen a, a, a large pullback in the S&P 500. And I'm, I'm wondering when you think that investors should expect the market to move lower so they can actually take advantage of potential buying opportunities. And just got about 30 seconds. 
Uh, Tim, we see this as very much a mid-cycle transition, which is known for volatility and known for corrections that could be as uh, as deep as 10, 15 percent. We see this happening before the year end based on all the the labor shortages and higher costs. And, you know, so we just see the negative earnings revision as the next logical step. So we would think before the year end, investors should have some cash on the sidelines to be able to buy on dips. All and right. take advantage of this mm, opportunity. Before the year ends, Carol. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the master sell-off. <laughs> I tell you. Katerina, thanks so much. Katerina Simonetti, she's Senior VP and uh, Private Wealth Advisor of at Morgan Stanley Private Wealth Management. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.